Welcome to Grace Harvest Church's weekly podcast. For more information about Grace Harvest Church or to find out more about something you hear during the podcast, visit us online at graceharvestchurch.org. Now listen in and allow God to speak to you through this week's message. Mother Teresa said this, and I I shared this last week, but I love this quote. She said, if we don't accept Jesus in one another, we will not be able to give him to others. If we don't accept Jesus in one another, we will not be able to give him to others. Years ago, I used to listen to a particular music artist, and he had one particular line in one of his songs that spoke of Jesus coming to us in his distressing disguise. And I, I, I remember, as I listened to that song, I remember how that term stuck to me, this idea of Jesus coming to us, and He's disguised, and His disguise is distressing. His disguise doesn't look like we would stereotypically think of when we think of Jesus. We would, we would think of Jesus, you know, with a, a, a beard and long flowing white robes and you know, walking along the Sea of Galilee, the wind from the sea is kind of blowing his robes, and you know, he's, he speaks in a British accent, super skinny. You know the guy. You know the Jesus I'm talking about. But Jesus doesn't come to us like that now. I mean, sometimes he does. There are people who experience him in supernatural ways. He appears to them in a vision or he reveals himself. We know right now in the Muslim world, all over the Middle East and in other parts of the Muslim world, Jesus is appearing to Muslims, hanging on the cross or risen from the dead. He's speaking to them and he's manifesting his gospel to them, even though they're not looking for him. And we're hearing about many Muslims that are coming to Christ. By the way, just so you know this, did you know that the fastest growing segment of Christianity in the world is in Iran? A lot of people didn't realize that the fastest growing church in the world is in Iran right now. So that, that's encouraging, isn't it? Now that doesn't go along with my message, but hey, it's okay. Jesus comes to us in a distressing disguise many times, and He comes to us in the people that we come across every day, and He doesn't look like we expect Him to. He, he, he's disguised, and His disguise is distressing. His disguise may, may be the kind of disguise that you in particular have a difficult time with, and He'll come to you that way. And we're going to be talking about how He welcomes us back and how He shows up through people in the Scripture and how He showed up in particular to one man today in, in, the, in the weeks ahead. So last week we learned that a loving church family recognizes, honors, and sacrifices to demonstrate that people belong. You belong here. I really believe that. If you're here today, now, you might be checking out churches, you might be kind of, you know, doing the church shopping thing and seeing if we're the place you want to be, and I get that, and I would encourage you to check out other churches in our community if that's you, because we've got a lot of good churches in Moses Lake, a lot of really good churches, so check them out, go ahead, but I want to tell you that I believe that most of us that are in this room right now belong here. We belong here. It's not an accident that you came in and something connected and something happened and God did something inside of you. That's not an accident. And I want you to know that you're valuable to us. And I really mean that. You're valuable to us. You're not just filling a seat. We're not looking at you with dollar signs over your head. We're looking at you as human beings that bear the image of God that are in need, like all of us, of redemption and forgiveness and the love of God, that are in need of transformation, 
that are in need of the life-changing power and presence of Jesus Christ. But I want you to know you are valuable to us. And you're valuable to God. You're valuable to, to God. And, and you're loved by God. And He wants you to know that you belong in His family. Amen? Today we're going to learn that Jesus makes people who've been stigmatized and rejected belong within His family. He died that the rejected and cast out of our world can be loved, accepted, and made to feel like they belong with Him and His family. And I want to tell you, that's my experience. My experience is that I was included in a group that I didn't think I belonged. Amen? So I'm going to start today by talking about the people that God chooses to belong with Him. And we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. I want you to notice this on the screen. I love this text of Scripture. Paul writes this, for consider your calling, brothers. Now, calling here isn't talking about your ministry. It's not talking about what you'll do for God. It's the calling that you receive when you become a follower of Jesus Christ. It's the calling toward salvation. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So I, I was making notes here, and the first kind of sub-point to this point is simply this. God chooses the least likely to succeed often. Amen? And, and all of you out there that are like, that's me, amen, yeah, I already have hope. Right? The things that we think give us value and importance are meaningless to God. It seems that God's people are often made up of the foolish, the weak, the low, the despised, and the powerless. This is often true because the powerful, rich, high, and esteemed of our world often don't see their need for God. They don't see their need for a Savior. They don't see their need for the gospel. They don't see their need for grace. Listen, if you're self-sufficient and you got your act together and everything's going your way and you've lived a life of privilege and it's just really easy for you to think about yourself that you're good. You're a good Joe or you're a good Josephina, right? If you think you're that person that's already kind of got it and that God should be happy to have you on his team, you're not going to be a candidate, right? I mean, God can break through those things. We see that in Scripture. But oftentimes, people who recognize, who've had their eyes open to their need, are the ones that become the called, right? You recognize before God, He opens your eyes and gives you the ability to see that you need Him. You know, over the years, many have commented to me at different times how many broken people were in our church. Sometimes they meant it critically. Sometimes they've seen it as a fault or a weakness to our church. I'm often reminded those I've often reminded those people that Jesus spent a lot of time with the broken, that He loved sinners and the rejected and the stigmatized people of His time. If, we're ever to become, if we were ever to become a church where broken people like me don't feel welcome, I'd be really concerned. I'd probably want to go somewhere else. I never want to be a holy club or a country club church. I want everyone to feel welcome here, but I also want people to be challenged to grow 
and become more giving, more selfless, and more like Jesus. Amen? But we've had people come in at different times over the years, and it's, it's interesting. They're, they're, they come into our church. Maybe they're in a little bit more of a privileged position. They're doing a little bit better in life, and they notice that we got a lot of broken people. we got people that are coming out of addictions. we got people that are battling with stuff in their marriage. we got people that are coming out of sexual addictions. We've got people that are broken and in need and need the grace of God in an amazing way, and they notice that. They come in, and they're like, whoa, man wow, this isn't, you know, they're like, I don't know if this is my kind of church. And I've, I've had people actually mention it to me. Wow, man, you, looks like you could use some help around here. And I, I, I'll always challenge that, that kind of thinking. So you know what? I'm really glad our church, now listen, I understand, not everybody in here is coming out of the things I just mentioned. Not all of you in this room are dealing with those issues, but everyone in this room is dealing with some kind of sin, some kind of brokenness, some kind of weakness. Amen? Amen. You're dealing with your own levels of lostness, and you are in desperate need of the grace of God. And when you don't realize that, when you find yourself standing in a position where you can look around and kind of measure yourself against other people, and you can say of yourself, I'm glad I'm not like them, or I'm glad I don't look like that, or I'm glad I'm not going through that, and those poor people, those poor unfortunate people, when those kind of attitudes come up in you, those are revelations from God that you are in desperate need of grace. The revelations from God that you need to repent of having a judgmental spirit, having a spirit of self-righteousness that sees yourself better than another. Because the truth of the matter is we're all made of the same stuff. It's broken and fallen. It's called sin. And without redemption in Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter how good you look put together on the outside. You are a messed up human being who, if you don't have redemption, you'll be damned and apart from God forever. So let's remember that. Let's remember that, you know, people say this sometimes, but if not for the grace of God, there go I. And I'm going to tell you, it's very true of my life. I tell people all the time, if Jesus Christ hadn't rescued me and didn't continue to rescue me, I'd either be in prison or dead, or right now, who even knows the level of brokenness I would have in my life? So thank God for grace, amen? And God chooses those who have nothing to boast in. That's the other point I see from this. The truth is, before God, no human being has anything to boast in. If we trust in all of our achievements, our human goodness, our philanthropy, our degrees, our money, or power for our value, our standing, or our identity, they're like nothing but hot air to God. Now look, God likes it. He, he works in us, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So I'm not advocating laziness. I'm not saying don't work hard. I'm, I'm not saying it's bad to achieve. I'm not saying that you shouldn't accomplish everything you should accomplish. I'm not saying that it's not a good thing for people to be successful. All of that is right and good if it's in its proper place. But when we start kind of looking at our human standing and, you know, we're trying to keep up with the Joneses and we're trying to present a certain outside appearance to people in order that we might be accepted by culture or people will think we're good or better than someone else, something's askew. And that's when we need to be rocked with the gospel and brought back again to the foot of the cross where we recognize that that is a a level ground there before that cross and every single one of us come to that cross in the same status in, this, in the same way. We come broken. We come needy. We come as beggars. See, when we truly realize our fallen and sinful state before the cross of Jesus, 
all boasting goes out the door. Again, people who are given the gift of seeing their true state before God are the ones that he chooses. Sinners are given grace, the sick are healed, the humble are lifted up into the presence of the high and lofty God. Look at Isaiah 57, 15. I love this text. It says, for thus says the high and lofty one. Think about these these terms here. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Isn't it interesting? The people that God dwells with, the people that he gets real close to, the people that he calls into his presence are not the mighty and the powerful and the great ones, but they're the little people, the broken people, the contrite people, the humble people. Can I get an amen? So maintaining that attitude before God is so, so important. You know, sometimes somebody will say something like this, and and I used to believe this too, and I'm not trying, again, I don't want to sound like I'm better, I don't want to get caught in the very trap I'm I'm railing against here, right? But somebody will say, man, if just so-and-so would get saved, you know, they're a celebrity, they're an athlete, we have this idea that if great and powerful people would come to faith in Jesus Christ, they could be used so mightily for God because of their great influence. And I'll hear people say that. I remember when Michael Jackson was still alive, people would say, man, if you know, Michael Jackson got saved, just imagine what he could do for the kingdom. And I, I, I find myself going, no, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Because the first thing God has to do with people that are great is bring them down. Make them into nothing, Right? To a degree, it's almost as if he has to say, you know, all that glory and that privilege and that power that you have, th- that's all got to go away for a while because that's, that's not what it's about. You, you, can't be, you can't do something great for me in your own abilities or your own strength. I have to bring you to nothing that I may make you something, right? So let's remember that. Let's remember that God actually loves people who have come to recognize, and I, it's all by His grace, it's all because He opens our eyes, but who have come to recognize that apart from Him, I can do nothing. Paul said, there is no good thing in me that is in my own flesh. There's nothing about me that's redemptive apart from God's grace. Do you believe that about yourself? Secondly, I'm going to illustrate it with this story. I love this story. A stigmatized outsider is made to belong again. Look at Matthew 8, verses 1 through 4 with me. I love this story. I was studying for this message, and I saw so many um, stories that followed this that I wanted to use, and I, I just didn't have time. Matthew 8, 1 through 4, it says, When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now, I just want to walk you through this little story because it's full of beautiful, beautiful revelations of the nature of God. The first one is when he came down from the mountain. You know what mountain he was on? He had just finished preaching the Sermon on the Mount, perhaps the greatest sermon ever preached. And that sermon had started with these words, blessed are the poor in spirit. This man heard himself in the sermon 
And as it were, he's responding to the altar call. He heard the hope of the gospel in the sermon, and he recognized that Jesus would receive him and make him feel welcome. He heard the love, the compassion, the healing coming from Jesus. Jesus had just stood and spoke this profound message. And somewhere in blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are all these different people in a, in a state of kingdom need, blessed are they. And somewhere in that he heard himself and he recognized Jesus might be able to talk to me. He might be able to heal me. Well, I think he thought more than that. Jesus will heal me. I, I, he's the one I've been looking for. And so he immediately comes to Jesus, and it says, I, I love it, it says, after that, and great crowds follow Jesus. And I find this even today, even today, great crowds follow Jesus, amen? And it's exciting. I mean, how many of you like to see, you know, pictures of crusades overseas where thousands and thousands and thousands of people are coming to Jesus? I mean, he still attracts great crowds. I mean, we have churches in our nation right now that on a Sunday morning, if you can imagine this, on a Sunday morning in multi-sites have over 50,000 people showing up to their services. 50,000. That's crazy. There's a church in Korea that's, I don't know, somewhere around a million people now. A million people. That's crazy. But there are times when it's kind of cool to be a part of the crowd. It's kind of cool to, to go to church. And, and, and there are times even culturally when being a Christian is kind of cool. And you know, the beauty about Jesus is he, he didn't turn the crowds away. He didn't reject them. He loved them. He didn't turn away from the needs that were presented to him. But in the midst of the crowd, there's one person who was rejected, unclean, and stigmatized, and this is the one who first comes to him out of that sermon. So he's in front of a giant crowd. The scripture says he goes up on this mountain. His disciples come to him. We don't know if it was just the 12 or if it was hundreds. It seems that, that just his kind of his close followers were near him, and then the crowds are all out there kind of below the mountain. He stands up. He preaches this sermon. He gets done preaching this, this sermon, and the first thing that happens is a leper comes to him. Of all people, a leper comes to him. Why is that important? It says a leper came and knelt before him. Leprosy and a variety of skin diseases existed at the time and were grounds for total isolation and rejection. Lepers were outcasts and they only had each other for company. Which is interesting because there's a crowd of people, there's disciples around him, and somehow a leper gets through. I mean, I don't know what the security team was doing that Sunday, but you don't let these kind of undesirables in. What is up with this? A leper gets through. And if you know about leprosy, lepers had to, as they came, as they walked along together, they had to lift up their voices wherever they went according to the Old Testament law. And they had to yell, unclean, unclean, so that a wide path would be made for them. So they were the most rejected people in the society. And... In this man's case, he, he saw hope. He saw hope through the crowd. Look at what Leviticus 13, 45 and 46 says about lepers. It says, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So this is the context for this guy. So sad and so tragic, this disease must not spread, so he must be isolated and alone and not apart. But I love his approach to Jesus. He comes to Jesus then and he says, if you will, 
you can make me clean. This man approached Jesus with such humility, honor, and trust, he left it up to the will of Jesus. Of course, his attitude of trust and desperation moved Jesus' heart, moved, with, moved him with compassion. And I love what it says. Now think about this. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. He stretched out his hand and touched him. Why is that a big deal? Well, first of all, this man was unclean. He was both physically unclean and he was religiously or ceremoniously unclean. See, skin diseases in general at that time had a stigma of uncleanness, of dirtiness. Leprosy had such a bad reputation as being the judgment of God. It was, it was seen as a result of great rebellion toward God. In, in, in that society, it's like, you're particularly dirty. You are a particular rebel. You are particularly worthy of rejection. If you have leprosy, it's because you've been really bad and evil somewhere in your heart. They didn't make the connection in their mind that it could have been just due to the fact that diseases spread through what you eat, drink, what you come in contact with. They didn't always make those connections culturally. But if someone had leprosy, they saw it as the judgment of God for that person's rebellion. Or religiously or ceremoniously unclean, because leprosy was often seen as the judgment of God or the result of sin and rebellion. It was the ultimate uncleanness. A person who was religiously unclean was outside the community and not welcome in God's presence according to the way the law was interpreted in that time. So now what happens? The Son of God, God in the flesh Himself, walks to this man. This man comes to Him, and Jesus does something that is unheard of. No Pharisee, no scribe, no religious leader of that time, no priest would have ever reached out their hand and touched a leper. They would have stood back from him. But Jesus stretches out his hand. Now here's what that culture thought. That culture thought that if I reach out my hand and I touch, and I'm, I'm not saying you're a leper, okay, I just want you to know. If I reach out in my, my hand and I touch you, that that religious ceremonial uncleanness is going to spread to me. So as I touch you, now I'm unclean. I may not get leprosy, but in the eyes of the law, and then the way the law was interpreted by the culture of that time, at that moment, I became rejected, as it were, from God's presence and the community's presence. You're not welcome in this family anymore. You have leprosy, or you touch the leper. You're unclean. And, and, and if somebody touched something that was unclean, they had to go through a process of purification. So Jesus reaches out his hand, and he touched a leper. That would have made him unclean. But he transcended the rules, and he touched this man. He demonstrated love, mercy, and kindness. And I was thinking about this. You know, we don't really deal with leprosy in our culture, but we deal with emotional and spiritual leprosy all the time. We have people right here in this room, people in our churches, people in our culture, and you're here today, and you know what I'm talking about. You have felt many times in your life, maybe even right now, you have felt kind of outside looking in. You've kind of felt like you're not a part of the community of God. You've kind of felt even unworthy in the presence of God. You've maybe lived your life with this idea just, I'm never clean enough. I'm never good enough. I'm never holy enough. I'm not welcome with God. I'm not welcome among His people. And it's the way you see yourself. It's your view. And I want to tell you, Jesus is never put off by people that are in that place. 
He's never put off. He doesn't recoil from you. I hear people sometimes say, man, I've been sinning. I've been blowing it in my life. I really fell hard this week. I'm not, I can't go to church. I feel unworthy. I get in the presence of God. I feel unworthy. And I'm like, that's exactly the place you need to be. Bust down the doors and get in here and worship God and let the Holy Spirit convict your heart and bring you to repentance and cry out and confess your sin and get clean and washed. Come near to Jesus and throw yourself at his mercy and you'll find that he'll reach out his hand and he'll touch you and make you clean. Sometimes people will say, I I don't feel worthy to go to church. I'm like, are you kidding me? Get your butt in there. You let the Lord touch your life. Church isn't a place for put-together people. It's a place for sinners. Amen. That's what makes the gospel so beautiful. I love this. In their book, Next Door, As It Is in Heaven, authors Lance Ford and Brad Briscoe discuss the profound loneliness people are regularly experiencing in our world, and the subsequent and sobering sense that they have very little value at all in the eyes of people. Sadly, most of us contribute to this loneliness and lack of self-worth as we move throughout our day, rarely ever lifting our heads to offer a simple greeting. Ford and Briscoe contrast our relational aloofness with the daily practice that author Peter Senge noticed among the tribes, tribes of the northern Natal in South Africa. The most common greeting, and I've heard a similar greeting in Zimbabwe because Zulu and Indibeli are, um, I guess you could say, family tribes, as it were. They're kin. There's a kinship there. And the most common greeting that is used to say hello, as it were, in, in, in that language is the expression, sawubona, sawubona. And it literally means, I see you. I love that. I see you. If you're a member of the tribe, you might reply by saying, Sikona, Sikona, which means I am here. So the way they would greet each other in our language would be, I see you, I'm here. Right? Isn't that cool? And and in, here's, here's kind of the interpretation culturally. The order of the exchange is important because the idea is until you see me, I do not exist. It's as if when you see me, you bring me into existence. A deep truth resides in this cultural practice, Ford and Briscoe observed. When we merely move throughout our days without seeing people as people, then as far as it matters to us in that moment, they really don't exist. Isn't that true? But being conscious of how we approach people we encounter through the normal routines of our day is a step toward bringing heaven here on our little patch of earth. Just the acknowledgement of another human being, the picture of the idea of, I see you, I'm here. I acknowledge you. You're important. You know, I was standing at the back of the service, and um, I was standing back there as we were worshiping, and, I, and uh, a brother here in church walked by me, and I had just turned my head, and I turned around, and he was there, and he's like, hey, Doug. I'm like, oh, hey, like that. And, and I realized I was kind of in my own world at that moment, and I wasn't even aware of what was happening. I remember uh, this has happened to me a number of times over the years, but I'll have people, I'll find out like after some time has passed that somebody was offended with me. And so they'll come to talk to me, and, and I'll say, hey, what's up? I, I, I understand that I, I did something. And they'll be like, yeah, I came to church, and you didn't even say hi to me. <laughs> you walked right by me, and you didn't even say hi. And I'm like, really? But, you know, sometimes, like, I'm here on Sunday morning, and sometimes I don't see people. 
I got a lot on my mind. I'm really focused. I'm walking around just like, hey, man, did you get that done? And did you get that? And is that taken care of? And I'm checking with the ushers and I'm making sure everything's good on the sounds. I'm walking around and sometimes I forget that I'm actually here for people. <laughs> what the heck? We have a task to accomplish. But people are the task, amen? And then I, I want you to notice the next thing, and that is that Jesus wills your cleansing. Jesus turns to him. He says, if you will, I'd like to be made clean. Jesus said, I will. I, I, that's so powerful to me. He wants us to be clean. He wants us to be healed. This interaction is such a great uh, pattern for us to observe. Those who come to Jesus for cleansing will be cleansed. It is God's will. He says, if you will, Jesus says, I will. And, and some of you, maybe even in this room, you feel like in your life, like, you know, I... I've gone too far. I've gone too deep. It's too dark. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I'm up to. The stain on my life is really, really deep. It's all through the fabric. I don't think there's a cleansing agent in the universe that can cleanse it. And Jesus says, no, my blood can cleanse any sin, no matter how deep and dark within my sacrifice is sufficient for you. It's good enough. No matter how deep your failure, it's good enough. And then it's interesting, isn't it? Jesus says, shh, don't tell anybody. Why did he do that kind of stuff? He always obeyed the law of Moses and did what was necessary to confirm the miracle. He wanted these lepers to be examined so they would be accepted back into the community because without the priest's approval they would remain outcasts in spite of their healing. So he says, show the priest, he'll confirm the miracle. It's like, go to the doctor and confirm that you're healed so you'll no longer need to be quarantined alone any longer. And that's in effect what Jesus is saying to the priest. But more than that, he says, you know, keep it quiet. Why would he do that? In our society, in our culture, in our church culture, if somebody got healed... I'm not saying that this is necessarily bad, but hear me out. If somebody got healed of leprosy, right? If we had somebody walk out of a wheelchair, if we had a really amazing miracle happen, the tendency would be to make a video, write a book, put it on social media, post it on YouTube, and make sure everybody in the world knows what's happening at Grace Harvest Church. Amen? And it would go all over the community, and everybody would hear about it, and we'd be like, yeah! And Jesus is like, no! You know, there are times it records that the crowds came to take him and make him king. They wanted to lift him up, and thousands came to him. And you know what he would do? It's the weirdest, most perplexing thing. Thousands would come to Jesus and begin to follow him. And they'd look for the loaf and the fishes and the miracles. They, they saw Jesus as a great welfare program. He's going to meet all of our needs, heal all of our diseases, make sure that we're fed. He's the Messiah. He's going to be the king, and he's going to rule over this great nation, and we're all going to be by his side. And right about the time he gets to the height of his popularity and his fame, Jesus preaches something that ticks a bunch of people off, and they leave. And, and that not only does he do that, he's like on a mountainside. And he starts to preach to him. He says, listen, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And then he starts walking up the mountain. 
And as he walks up, the crowds just get smaller and smaller and they thin. Why? Because Jesus is really calling people to himself and he uses processes to thin out the crowd that the true heart might be exposed. I see it in church all the time. I see people, Jesus is great as long as he's doing everything I want him to do. As long as I can say to my, my servant, Jesus, go here and do that and do this miracle and take care of me and give me that job and give me that spouse and make sure everything goes good. And something goes wrong in the marriage, some goes bad in the job, some goes bad in life, and we're like, we're out of here. Jesus is not a very good welfare program after all. And that's what happens. But it's okay. That's how Jesus builds a church. Am I talking to anybody? And lastly, what does Jesus ultimately do? Jesus cleanses us and brings us back to where we belong. You know what the ultimate desire of Jesus was with this man? For him to belong. For him to belong with his rightful father and for him to belong with his rightful family. The church, the people of God. He wanted a leper who was isolated and outside. He wanted one who was rejected and stigmatized to be brought near. That's why he said, go to the priest. Go to the priest, have him confirm it, get get the seal of approval, and then everybody in Israel will know you're now a part again. You're not on the outside looking in. You're on the inside. You're part of the family of God. He cleanses us and brings us back where we belong. You know... Almost every Sunday, I know there are people that show up to church and it's like a test. You know what I mean? It's like a test. I'm going to check this place out. Maybe you're coming back or it's your first time. I'm going to check this place out. I've had bad experience with churches, not really my gig, not really into organized religion. I'm just going to check it out. And so you come in the doors, you're kind of, you know, listening, checking things out. And I'm sharing with you a message that's about belonging. It's about being on the outside looking in and being included. And I know right now, I know there's a number of you in this room and and this message is hitting the mark. And so let's just talk about something. First of all, that's not a coincidence that you showed up today. Even though you've been disappointed, even though leaders have let you down, churches have let you down, you've experienced judgment, you've been put on the outside looking in, even though you may be going through a number of those kinds of things, it is not an accident that you're here right now. You're here right now because God is letting you know, I know you, I know where you live, I love you, I set you up, and I want you to know you belong. I want you in the family. I want you in the family. You're part of my family. So, maybe you got your own stuff. Maybe the reason that you've been away from the church is your own sin. Right? Your own sin, that own, your, your, your failures, your fallings. Whatever it may be, that thing that tells you, I don't belong, I'm not worthy, I shouldn't be there. Maybe that's you. Here's the beauty. Jesus says to you, I will be cleansed. I will be cleansed. Come on in. There's room for you here. Amen? Because the family that you're looking for is the church, the body of Christ. Jesus died for you to cleanse you and bring you back into his family. He purchased and cleansed a people for himself by pouring out his own blood on the cross. That's how he cleansed us. That's how he purchased us. That's how he brought us near, by dying for us, dying in our place, taking our penalty. Amen. 
How many of you know that's good news? You belong. Come on. Come back. Quit running. 